In this episode, the story of Boston-based Southworth and Hawes, the first American masters of portraiture, and they did it with daguerreotypes. Hey everybody, Keith Dotson here. In this episode of the Fine Art Photography Podcast, we'll talk about the work of Southworth and Hawes, a partnership that formed at the dawn of photography and resulted in perhaps some of the most stunning portraits ever made, even to this day. Along the way, we'll hear about what a daguerreotype is and how they were made, in my words based on research and in the words of Southworth himself, coming to us straight from the 1850s. Before I start, I just want to say that I'm excited about this episode, more so than usual. I take photographs of landscapes and old buildings, and I find the idea of shooting someone's portrait to be terrifying. It's like I have no idea how to pose or even relate to the sitter in a way that would make them comfortable. So I admire photographers who can elevate portraiture to the level of an art form. And the artists Albert Sand Southworth and Josiah Johnson Hawes were masterful with portraits at a time when the medium of photography was itself very new and a very difficult task. They were truly among America's first great photographers. Documents show they spent a lot of time practicing and perfecting exposures. Their excellence did not happen by accident. The daguerreotype process was invented in France by Louis Daguerre in the 1830s and publicly announced in 1839. It was really the first viable photographic process, and the results were so sharp and pleasing that daguerreotypes are considered by many to be the most beautiful photographs ever made, superior even, in many ways, to modern digital images. So the process was announced in 1839, and almost immediately it was being promoted in the United States by none other than Samuel F.B. Morse, who you may know as the namesake of the Morse Code. As it turns out, in addition to helping invent the Morse Code and the single-wire telegraph system, Samuel Morse was also a highly regarded portrait artist and a teacher. Morse had met Louis Daguerre in Paris in 1839 and came back to the U.S. as a proponent of the new technology. Daguerre sold his interest in the daguerreotype to the French government in exchange for a lifetime pension, and the French government bestowed the process on the world as a gift. Alphonse Giraud and C. was a camera manufacturing company that sent Francois Giraud to the U.S. as their agent. Giraud sold the first daguerreotype cameras in the U.S. to a Bostonian named Samuel Bemis and later sold one to Morse. A group of people gathered in New York eager to learn the new daguerreotype process, and before long, Morse opened his studio and began teaching students. Among his students were Matthew Brady, who gained renown as a battlefield photographer during the American Civil War, and by the way, I'll be doing a podcast episode about Brady soon. But another student was a man named Albert Southworth. It's possible you've heard of Matthew Brady or seen his work. But unless you're a real photo nerd like me, you've probably never heard of Southworth, which is a shame because he was half of one of the most brilliant photo studios in American history. America at the time was a vigorous young nation with a growing sense of itself. Boston was the second largest city after New York, known as the Athens of America because of its status as a center of education, literature, and technology. The railroad had already transformed the nation, and when photography was introduced by Garreau, it was quickly absorbed in pr into practice in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. If the daguerreotype was one of the finest photographic processes in history, Southworth and Hawes made some of the finest examples of that medium. Their brilliant use of light, avoidance of the typical contrived poses, and their attention to the individual personality of the subject brought incredible results and earned the studio a loyal following among some of the most prominent Americans of the day, 
including Ralph Waldo Emerson, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Quincy Adams, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and others like Commodores and Socialites. They even shot a portrait of Texas hero Sam Houston, and as a former Texan, I have to say that's pretty cool. But before I really dig into the work of Southworth and Hawes, this might be a good time to explain what a daguerreotype is and why they're always in a protective case. As I mentioned before, the photographs themselves are considered among the sharpest, most beautiful photographs ever made, even to this day. They're among the most prized by collectors for their unparalleled beauty. Daguerreotypes were popular as a photographic process from about 1839 when it was announced until roughly 1860. Every daguerreotype photograph was a direct positive original. In other words, the final image was the one made inside the camera. There was no negative and therefore no way to make reproductions. Daguerreotypes were imaged onto a highly polished piece of metal, so polished that they were shiny and reflective just like a mirror. The metal was usually a piece of copper coated with a thin layer of silver. Daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, and tintypes were often packaged in cases and can be difficult to tell apart, but a daguerreotype is distinguished by the fact that it looks like it's printed onto a mirror. It's very shiny. One auction site says that daguerreotypes give an almost holographic impression when viewed from an angle. Ambrotypes were printed onto glass and backed by a black paper to make the image visible. Tintypes were printed onto a thin emulsion onto a surface of a thin sheet of iron, not actually tin, and were often cut down from larger sheets, giving them an irregular edge. Unlike daguerreotypes, tintypes were not as fragile and delicate and didn't necessarily require the decorative outer cases. The reason daguerreotypes are so fragile is in the way that they're made light sensitive. First of all, the silver plated surface had to be buffed and cleaned just prior to use to remove any tarnish or oil from fingers or anything like that. A system of various materials were used, ending with a wipe with nitric acid to remove any remaining organic material. Then under safe light conditions, the silver plate was exposed to chemical fumes, usually halogen, but other things were used as well, to form a silver halide emulsion on the plate. As you can imagine, fumes create only a surface layer. They're not embedded into the metal so much, and therefore extremely easy to scuff or smear. The sensitized plate was then inserted very carefully into a plate holder that had a dark slide covering the front. That could be taken out of the darkroom and carried to the camera and inserted into the back of the camera. Once the dark slide was pulled and the lens cap removed from the front of the lens, the sensitized plate was exposed directly to light. The exposure time could run from a few seconds to several minutes, depending on the type of chemicals used, the brightness of the light, and the quality of the lens. At the end of the exposure, the lens cap was returned to the front of the lens, the dark slide was slid back into the camera, and the plate could be removed and carried to the darkroom for development. At this stage, the polished and fumed plate contains an invisible latent image. To develop the image, the plate was placed into a special developing box where it was exposed to even more fumes, this time heated mercury fumes, if you can believe that. So at this point, we can see this is not the most safe or environmentally friendly process. To stop the development, the plate was then doused in a solution of sodium thiosulfate. Sometimes an additional treatment of heated gold chloride was used to warm the gray tones and provide a little additional durability to the surface. One source said without this step, the surface would be as delicate as the dust of a butterfly's wing. Since the exposure was made directly to the plate with no intermediate negative, it's a flipped or reversed image of the subject. In other words, it appears backwards. Now that I've given you my researched and distilled description of how to make daguerreotypes, here's a direct quote from Southworth himself about the process copied from a web archive version of George Eastman House website. And this is a quote. Daguerreotypes are made upon a surface of silver, plated on a body of copper, about the thickness of a half dime. When the plate is polished smooth and clean, it becomes a black ground 
or blackboard by reflection upon which to make the picture. In a dark room, it receives upon its surface by evaporation a compound of iodine, bromine, and chlorine, forming an even and perfect light-sensitive coating. The first light emitted to the coated plate is a desired image made by the light in the camera obscura. The light affects the combined elements, composing the surface instantaneously in an exact proportion to the amount admitted. The plate is then placed over a box containing moderately heated cup of quicksilver or metallic mercury. The vapor of the quicksilver passes readily through the compound surface of the plate just in proportion to the light acted upon it and becomes attached to or amalgamated with the silver. This forms the lights of the picture and is the white chalk upon the blackboard. The time of the exposure of the plate to the coating to the image of the light and to the mercury can only be learned by actual experiments. After the picture is fully developed, it is immersed in a solution of hyosulfite of soda, which does not affect the mercury or black ground, but removes the compound coating. It is then submitted by a process in a heated bath of gold chloride, whereby the whole surface of the plate is coated with a leaf of pure gold, which protects it as a varnish does painting. The plate is then washed and dried. To secure daguerreotypes from injury, they are sealed under glass with a border between to prevent the glass from resting upon or chafing them and are then placed into cases or frames. End quote. So that's the daguerreotype process in my words and in those of Southworth. Now back to our subjects who were actually masters of the process. Albert Southworth was a well-to-do pharmacist when he traveled to New York to learn the daguerreotype process from Samuel Morse. He partnered with Morse's assistant, Joseph Pinnell, to open a studio in Boston. He'd already known Pinnell because they were roommates in a preparatory school years earlier. Pinnell didn't stay long. He left in about a year. In 1843, a carpenter and itinerant painter named Josiah Johnson Hawes joined the business. The celebrated studio of Southworth and Hawes was launched. Southworth's sister, Nancy, joined the firm and was employed applying hand coloring to uh, the plates. And she married Hawes eight years later. No quick worker, that Hawes. But wouldn't that make a great period piece costume drama about the romance as Hawes slowly works his nerve up to flirt with the sister of his business partner in this classic photography studio in Boston? I'd definitely watch it. They located the studio in a space on the top floor of a building in Boston with a lot of skylights, which provided tons of natural light diffused by a curtain. Remember, this was the 1840s, so there's no such thing as flash or artificial light for photography. In fact, photography was a new profession, having only been invented a few years earlier, so a lot of the stuff they were making up. The big skylights allowed for relatively short exposure times of 8 to 12 seconds, still long enough that they had to use stabilizing neck braces to keep people from moving during exposures and creating blur. For children who were naturally fidgety, they pulled back the curtains, sacrificed their artfulness of shading, and uh, got shorter exposure times, about one to five seconds. For the next 19 years, the duo earned praise for their artistic abilities and their technical skills. There's one particular example I want to talk about which shows their genius as portrait artists. On the National Gallery of Art website, there's a photograph called The Letter. While most studios cranked out standard head and shoulders portraits as quickly as possible to earn a profit, Southworth and Hawes made extraordinary images like this one in the most glorious range of tones you can imagine. We see a room with an out-of-focus chair on one side and a small table on the other. In the center, on the floor, we see two young women sitting close together, forming a triangular shape. Sisters, perhaps. Most likely, but their identities are actually unknown. One of the women, looking out of the frame as though deep in contemplation, holds an unfolded letter on her lap. 
The white paper contrasts against her dark dress, which is a typical design of the era. This photograph, known as the letter, was made in 1850. It's a whole plate, 8 inches by 6 inches. The other woman sits close, literally leaning on the shoulder of the other. Her quiet gaze also away from us, but not in the same direction as her friend. Her dress is lighter in color. She wears a fancy shawl around her slim shoulders. Both women have their hair pulled up and pulled back in tight, tidy buns like you usually see women in that time period in photographs. The mood is palpable. They are both seemingly deep in thought over the contents of the letter. Maybe they're daydreaming. Maybe they're wistful. Their faces really don't betray their moods. They're not happy or sad. They're just quiet and thoughtful. The fabric of their dresses is so lustrous you can almost imagine it rustling as they sit down to strike their poses. You can use a viewer on the NGA website to closely examine this image. The detail is stunning. You can see stitching in their garments. The second girl is wearing jewelry, and you can really zoom in to see the details. Big dangling earrings and an ornate heart pendant on a chain around her neck. Looking at this portrait, I want to know more about these women. What became of them? How did their lives turn out? We don't know those answers. The National Gallery provides the provenance of this photograph as well. It was in the possession of Josiah Hawes until his death in 1901. Then it passed to his sons and daughters, who had it until 1934. It was in the possession of the Holman Print Shop in Boston in the early 1940s, then privately owned by individuals until sold by Sotheby's in New York in April 27, 1999. It was owned briefly by Charles Isaacs Photographs, a dealer in vintage photography, until purchased by the National Gallery of Art in 1999. After a short break, we'll hear what Southworth said about the permanence of daguerreotypes and a lot more. Stay tuned. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Ads for the Southworth and Hawes studio in Boston show them located at 5.5 Tremont Row, which was a popular vicinity for prominent creative businesses in that era. They positioned themselves in a trendy location, perfect for impressing their high-impact clientele and for presenting themselves as artists. Tremont Row was renamed in the 1920s to Scully Square. The entire neighborhood was torn down in the 1950s with a raising of 1,000 buildings and the removal of 20,000 residents. It was replaced with office buildings in a development called Government Center. Daguerreotypes were shot in standard sizes created from what were described as whole plates, half plates, and quarter plates, etc. Based on the sizes of the available polished plates, Southworth and Hawes often worked in the whole plate format, which was about 6.5 by 8.5 inches. In addition to portraits of notables of the day, Southworth and Hawes made portraits of people who were not famous or influential. They made postmortem photographs, photographs of cemeteries and tombs, cityscapes and landscapes. They also made a series of photographs called The Death of Pain, documenting the first known applications of anesthesia in surgical procedures in the United States. 
Although at least some of these photographs are reenactments, it seems our man Hawes was too squeamish for the blood and gore of actual medical procedures, and frankly, I don't blame him. As with all aspects of their work, Southworth and Hawes were meticulous in their care to guarantee quality and longevity of their work. A web-archived version of the George Eastman House website from 2005-2006 contains some quotes about their attention to customer concerns about permanency. The first quote comes from an advertisement, and I quote, We coat all of our pictures with a perfect leaf of pure California gold, and so seldom is it that our miniatures have ever shown any defect, that we warrant them all. We never know any daguerreotype properly free from the chemicals and kept so to change or fade, end quote. The Eastman website quotes Southworth to have said this about permanence, and I'm quoting again. It is important for everyone to understand whether daguerreotypes are permanent and what is necessary for their preservation against accidents. Will daguerreotypes fade is a question asked constantly by visitors to the exhibition gallery, and our answer is they will not. Our reason for such an answer is, first, that the material of the picture when finished is purely metallic and not liable or subject to evaporation. It is not affected by heat unless artificial and sufficient to destroy any painting. Every person should remember that so highly a polished surface of silver or gold as a daguerreotype plate cannot be touched in any manner with anything whatever without soiling or scratching it. The earlier daguerreotypes were not gilded and many of a great value have been entirely effaced by being very carefully cleaned with a silk handkerchief. It may occasionally happen that spots will appear through some cavity or perforation in the silver. These, though blemishes, will not often injure the likeness and will appear but seldom if the artist uses electrotype plates. End quote. Thanks to that level of care, a huge number of Southworth and Hawes daguerreotypes survive in excellent condition. The studio charged really high fees because of their exacting standards, their use of large plates, and the fact that they made multiple shots of each sitter. They only gave one shot to the customers, so the multiple shots were kept in the studio's possession and have contributed to the fact that we have a large number of their surviving works. The partnership between Southworth and Hawes lasted for the duration of the use of daguerreotypes, and it dissolved in about 1862 or 1863, depending on which source you read. Southworth left the business for a short period in the early 1850s to go off to California to speculate for gold. He came back soon in poor health, but the business had been maintained by Hawes and by his wife Nancy, and it seems that Southworth moved right back into the business. While they were both dedicated to daguerreotypes, they were aware that times were changing, and they also made albumin prints. Many of the cityscapes of Boston were in fact albumin prints made from wet collodion negatives. But even as the technologies changed and as time marched on, Hawes in particular lamented the passing of the daguerreotype. He's quoted as saying this, Although the process has become obsolete, all experts agree that no other process can render objects vis-a-vis the human face with such fidelity and beauty. End quote. After splitting, Southworth became a lecturer. Hawes continued in the business as J.J. Hawes Company, in the same studio space until his death in 1901. He left a vast archive of images to his children. The George Eastman House, which holds 1,200 Southworth and Hawes daguerreotypes, maintains a spectacular collection of images on their Flickr page. The link, as always, in the accompanying podcast description or can be found on my blog at iCatShadows.com. Just search Southworth. Eastman also holds an extensive collection of the company's papers and records at the museum in Rochester, New York. Documents include daily ledgers and records, tax documents, information about their sale and distribution of photographic supplies to other photographers, even letters and documents containing family gossip. This material is carefully protected and only accessible to scholars and researchers, but maybe someday the museum will provide it online.
Anyways, that's all I've got for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again real soon.